I am very delighted to uh, welcome to the Christ Community family for the first time, we hope not the last time, into Kansas City, someone that uh, we have wanted you to hear from for a long time. And I'm grateful that, uh, Andy, you have uh, been willing to come and speak to us this weekend, and I'm grateful for your family who have given you up for the weekend. That is a work of grace, and we're grateful for that. Let me tell you just a little bit about Andy, and uh, Andy Crouch is here this morning. I know he doesn't want a long introduction, but I'm just so grateful he is here, uh, and uh, I want to share just a little bit about him. What I'd like to say is that uh, Andy Crouch is an important voice in our evangelical world, and uh, he spent 10 years with University Christian Fellowship at Harvard University. He graduated in classics from Cornell University, and uh, he received his MDiv, his Master of Divinity, from Boston University School of Theology. And if you were a part of the conference, you know that he is a classical trained musician. Uh, and he blessed us uh, with his wonderful musical gift. He presently serves as executive editor of Christianity Today, an important voice uh, in the, the Christian world and the evangelical world. He serves on the board of Fuller Theological Seminary. He is a senior fellow of the International Justice Mission. I know that's dear to his heart. Uh, he hangs out and gives direction to a wonderful little space I spend some time in here uh, with books and culture. Maybe you've uh, spent some time there. He has uh, written many, many articles and several books. Some of you might have uh, read some of his works. I know they've been very important to us in our conversation as a congregation. One of my favorites is Cultural Making. Uh, the subtitle is Re- Recovering Our Creative Calling. And he has a new book out, and it's not out yet, but you're going to want to keep this in mind. I don't think it's available yet through Amazon or through our Kindle. Uh, but it's called Playing God, a very important message about redeeming the gift of power. Uh, some of you have read Amy Sherman's book. Amy was here this weekend on Kingdom Calling, about vocational stewardship. And uh, this is a wonderful piece of that beautiful tapestry. Uh, about being faithful and what God has given us in the gift of power. He lives in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, and uh, it's a delight to welcome to Christ Community Andy Crouch. Let's give him a very warm Kansas City and Christ Community welcome. Andy? (laughs) Thank you, Tom. (laughs) Well, you know, it's been a great weekend when... I'm listening to Tom say thank you and all this, and I want to I want to enter into one of those contests where you're like, no, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, really, thank you, because Kansas City is awesome, I, which I had heard. Um, <laughs> uh, now I understand the weather is like this every uh, every April, every single day. It's been magnificent, and what's been more magnificent has been uh, just being part of this community. Um, I'm so grateful for the way that you've been led, the people who have shaped you. I, uh, I really needed worship today, the way that Randy and his team led us, so thank you to them. And thank you for who you all are. I got to know some of you at this conference, uh, CG 2013, The Common Good, Uh, And it's so encouraging to see a church engaging its community with a vision not just for good uh, good things happening uh, here on Sunday morning, but good things happening Monday and Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, every day of the week, and realizing that everything we do is of significance uh, to God and to God's kingdom. There's not one uh, one, uh, sacred sphere of life and a secular sphere of life, the whole thing can be full of the glory of God. 
So we talked about that, those of you who were able to be with us the last two days, and one of the key themes that emerged is that when we are out in the midst of our city, our neighborhoods, our schools, workplaces, um, we are actually fulfilling the plan that God had from the very beginning of creation, which is that this good creation, which starts out good, six times declared good, six days in a row, would become very good when God's representatives, God's image bearers were in it. And so the kind of basic story of creation and the basic story of culture is from good to very good. A good created world, but then the image bearers arrive and it becomes very good. So I was thinking about examples of this and uh, I was thinking about bread. Um, Bread is a cultural thing, but it starts with a natural thing, right? Grain, which just grows in this abundant good world. Human beings tend the grain, uh, perhaps weed it, eventually harvest it, crush it, uh, mill it, put it together with some yeast and salt and water and let it sit, and the yeast do their amazing little yeasty thing. Uh, And out the back end of the yeast comes carbon dioxide, and that causes the bread to rise, and then somebody picks up that risen loaf and puts it in an oven, and it comes out. And the way I would put it is, you know, wheat and uh, yeast and salt and water are good, but bread is very good, right? And only because image bearers are involved do you ever get bread. The world, there are no bread trees, you know? (laughs) There are wheat stalks, but there's no place you can go to get bread unless you can find an image bearer who will work with those uh, kind of raw materials, those natural materials, and create this very good cultural thing. So God gives us a world with chickens, and the chickens lay eggs, and eggs are good, but you uh, crack the egg, beat the egg, add a few other ingredients, heat it at just the right temperature for the right amount of time, flip it one time, and you have an omelet. Eggs are good. Omelets are very good. (laughs) And then one more example, right, would be grapes. The world has grapes in it, these Remarkable round fruits. Human beings tend those, place them on trellises, harvest them, stomp them under their feet, put them in the right conditions in casks for a while, uh, and then draw out the result. And if they're Baptists, they get grape juice. A truly miraculous uh, result. Uh, However, I'm Anglican, and we get wine. I don't know... I don't know what you get at Christ Community, but um, I would say the grape is good, but the wine is very good. The first congregation amen at that point. I'm, <laughs> this is a different crowd, I see. <laughs> well, whether you get grape juice or wine, I like grape juice too, but there is something about wine in its complexity, in its depth of flavor, in its hints of the land where the grapes are grown. Uh, I think it's biblical. I think it's biblical to say this wine, which gladdens the heart, gladdens our heart because it's very good. And only if you have image bearers involved, only if we get involved and do the work of culture, does the world ever have wine. Until human beings come along, the world never produces that by itself. The closest you get is vinegar. (laughs) Uh, Vinegar is fine, but it's not very good in the way that wine is very good. And that's the story that we kind of dwelt in this past weekend and the importance of what we do, each of us in our own way, at whatever stage of life we're at, whether it's a kid making mud pies or a grandma making apple pies, we are taking the raw material of creation, bearing the image, 
and coming up with something that makes more of the world, that leads to the flourishing of the world. And that's a, that's a very good thing. But there is another stage or step in the story that I want us to focus on this morning. And that is, with the backdrop of a good creation made very good by the image bearers, that is another word that comes into the story early and, and is the culmination of the story. And that word is glory. The, the full story of the world is not just good to very good. It's good to very good to glory. Now, this is a word we use a lot <laughs> in the church. I was counting during worship, and I think we've used it at least two dozen times, counting all the repetitions and so forth in the songs we sang. As we finish the Lord's Prayer, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. But I've realized that often I'm not sure we know what we are talking about. Do do you ever feel there are some religious words, you know, hallelujah, hallelujah. What does hallelujah mean? I don't know, hallelujah, right? There are some religious words that just seem very natural and appropriate and ring with significance to us, but maybe we've never thought about what's the significance or the meaning of this word glory. Why do we use that word so much uh, in our worship when we want to, uh, offer God the worship that, uh, that God deserves. Why does this word come up? So I want to unpack that word uh, with you for the next few minutes. I have a, a simple, but I think um, sufficiently rich way of defining it that it might help us. When I think of glory, what I think of is the magnificence of true being. Glory is the magnificence of true being, by which I mean the extraordinary quality of something or someone that is fully itself, that is being everything it or he or she can be. And glory is our name when we see some aspect of creation, or indeed the creator God himself, as as it or he truly is. And when you see anything that is truly fully itself, or any person being truly fully themselves, the quality that we name that with is, gl- is glory. So we've been very assisted in uh, seeing this in the last couple of days by the weather, uh, which, you know, wouldn't you, on a day like yesterday and even today, I understand it may rain later, but let's just hold on to this moment as long as we can. Uh, don't you walk out and you are, you are inclined to say, what a glorious day, all right? And it's partly because of spring happening all of a sudden. Uh, I was down on the plaza last night at 6 p.m. with Kevin Harlan. We were driving past a a tree that was on a kind of south-facing, in a south-facing little corner of a a little yard in front of a building. And it was a cherry tree whose blossoms were bursting out. And he said, this morning I drove by that tree and there were no blossoms on that tree. And in the afternoon, in the course of just one warm, sunny day, the tree was like, okay, I think it's time. <laughs> you know? And, you know, that tree is, it, those blossoms were there all along waiting to emerge, but they emerged yesterday, and the result was a glorious tree. The potential that was there all along in the tree was suddenly fully expressed and visible, and the reaction to that for us as, as observers of that is, that now that's glory. It's the magnificence that the tree always could have had, but that you hadn't yet seen until 6 p.m. yesterday. And in a way, every season has its moments of glory, all four seasons. There's a glorious part of winter. 
especially if you have a 16-year-old who will shovel, which is what I have. So I just look out. Actually, the most glorious sight for my house is to look out the window and see my son shoveling the walk. That, that just gives me deep joy um, and knowing how little we pay him in his allowance for that. Um, but those mornings when you wake up and snow has fallen and has blanketed the world and you don't have to get right up and deal with it and you can just behold it. There's a glory to winter. And there's the glory of spring, when spring is magnificently itself. There's a glory to summer, and then the fall when the leaves start to turn their colors. We see the colors that have been in the leaves all along, but camouflaged by the chlorophyll in the leaves, and it drains out, leaving behind these glorious leaves. Every season has this moment when you're like, wow, it's really fall today. It's really spring today, and that's glorious. And then there are months like March in Philadelphia this year, which was neither winter nor spring, and was just demoralizing. I mean, it, it, was, it was not glorious. It wasn't even really very good. It was just barely tolerable, because we're waiting for that moment when something really magnificent happens. Glory, the magnificence of true being. Yesterday, uh, last night, through the gracious hospitality of uh, the Haddad uh, family, we ate at Plaza 3, which... Uh, is a glorious experience, and also I will never have to eat again, so that is especially good. Uh, And as we were on our way there, we came out of the Brookside campus of this church in that actually quite glorious building that you all have restored. And as we left the building for dinner, uh, a wedding party was arriving for a wedding in that church building. And just on my way out the door, I caught a glimpse of the bride being photographed before all the guests arrived and everything. And even without, uh, I was just walking out the door, but just that glimpse, I was like, whoa, there's something glorious happening in there. Because there was this person in this beautiful gown, and the lights were on, you know, to get the right photo, and kind of this halo of light around their veil. And I thought, wow, that's glorious. Magnificent. What's about to happen in this building is magnificent. So we go downtown to Plaza 3, and we're sitting, having this marvelous dinner, And I see this parade of 18-year-olds going by, dressed very much like the bride was dressed, maybe not in white, but in these very elaborate, you know, clothes. I was like, do they do this in Kansas City every Saturday night? (laughs) And apparently it's prom night, right? Uh, And so all these kids were down, you know, kind of playing grown up. And uh, and I I loved my, I had the best prom night you could ever ask for. And it brought back all these memories of getting dressed up and getting that boutonniere. And I was not stabbed by my girlfriend. And she was, you know, amazing in her dress. And we had this wonderful, wonderful night. And I was thinking about the similarities and the differences between prom and a wedding. You know, at prom, you get dressed up. Prom, everyone looks beautiful. It's a, glor- uh, uh, you know, a very wonderful time. But I'm not sure I would use the word glorious quite. I think prom is glamorous. But a wedding is glorious. Why, why are they different? Why do I have so much deeper memories of uh, the weddings I've attended than I do of prom, as good as it was. And I think it's because in a wedding, we're not just dressing up. We're dressing up to do something of ultimate significance, to make these impossible promises, these promises that we are not going to be able to keep. (laughs) I, Andrew, take you, Catherine, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, until we are parted by death. 
we say those words and everyone watching knows, hey, these people are too young to be saying this. <laughs> they have no idea what they're doing. And what they're doing is making promises they can't keep that will have to be kept for them by the grace of God. And we look at that and we say, there's something right about that. Human beings are made to do this. We're made to enter into covenant. We're made to risk ourselves for another. We're made to give ourselves in love, not just to our spouse, but to the world to pour ourselves out. And and the wedding is a symbol of that. And so a wedding is magnificent and moving in a way that just a great high school dance will never be. Because it's when we see human beings being fully themselves. Glorious. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward had tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, every good Anglican serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine when the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The way John tells the story of Jesus, the very first miracle Jesus does, is to create glory. Not merely good wine, or good juice, good, very good wine, But something so glorious that when the steward tastes it, he's taken completely aback. Where did this come from? I don't, we didn't order, you know, Chateau Lafitte 1964 for this event. And we certainly wouldn't have kept it till the end after everyone's palate has been dulled by drinking. Where did this come from? The steward is such an interesting, this guy is so interesting. Because we don't get any hint that he ever figures out where it came from. And we don't know if he ever became a Christian, what he did later in his life. And I always think, isn't that amazing that the person who tasted the most glorious wine ever to be served this side of the New Jerusalem never knew where it came from. Imagine that anonymous steward tasting the new wine of Jesus' kingdom. And all he can say is, wow, this is glorious. Jesus did this to show what he was about 
that he was going to come not just to participate in this human project of turning good to very good, but a divine project of taking the most ordinary things, just water in these ordinary water jars at the edge of the feast, and turning it into something absolutely breathtaking. That he had come into the world not just to continue the story of good and very good, but to catapult it into another reality, the reality of glory. And it's interesting, glory always comes as a gift. It always comes in this kind of unexpected way, and it certainly does in this story. Jesus and his disciples are, seem like they're sort of guests of the guests. The mother has been invited. Jesus gets to come along. His disciples tag along. It's his entourage, we'd say now, right? And they're just at the edge of the feast, out where the water jars are, where the servants are. They're not where the spotlight is, where the bridegroom is sitting, where the steward is doing his job. And at the edge of this feast, uh, suddenly something magnificent happens. It's always a surprise. So glory is not just very good working much harder. (laughs) It's not just, okay, well, that was pretty good. But now, you know, can't we gin up some glory here? It's always a surprise. Shadow Lafitte makes very good wine every year. But some years, a gift is given. And the, the sommelier takes it out of the barrel and tastes it and says, oh, glory happened this time. We don't know what we did. We can't do it again next year. Glory is just a gift. It kind of comes into our lives at unexpected moments. It catches us, causes our, our eyes to well up, our throats to catch. Sometimes it happens in worship. I'm a, I'm a piano player, and there was this one thing Randy did <laughs> on the piano. He was just magnificently himself as a pianist. And as a fellow pianist, I heard it. I was like, wow, thank you. There's a guy behind me with a bass voice at, during Holy, 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 singing the bass harmony part. And he's being magnificently himself, and if I tried to sing that note, it would not work. But he sang that low E flat or whatever the heck it was. This rumbling sound, perfectly in tune, just a moment ago. And I just had this moment of awe. Someone being magnificently himself. It's just a gift. Nothing we could have worked up, planned, strategized, just comes as a gift. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is John, by the way, who told us that story. Now at the end of his life, he tells us what he's seen. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. In the final pages of Scripture, we learn the end of the story and we realize that God's purpose for the cosmos was not merely very goodness. And not merely fixing what had gone wrong with the fall. 
It's something much deeper than that. It's this remade world that is now a glorious world, a world where everything you see, touch, handle, smell, hear, has the magnificence of true being. A world where the glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. And the one who sits on the throne says, see, I'm making all things new. A friend of mine observed, Jesus does not say at this moment, see, I am making all new things. <laughs> right? If he said, see, I'm making all new things, he'd be saying, well, first creation was a good try, good attempt, good first draft, but sweep it into the lake of fire. Let's start over. Let's make new stuff, better stuff. We'll do it right this time. It's not what he says. He says, Thee, I'm making all things new. Everything in that beautiful, broken, original creation is going to be rescued. Whatever was good in it, whatever was very good in it, is going to be rescued. And just like we believe our bodies, good and very good, and also broken and frail, are going to be raised to glory, so everything in creation is going to be raised to glory. Here's what it says. Uh, the nations will walk by the light of the Lamb, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into the city the glory and honor of the nations. This city is not filled, as some might have you believe, simply with disembodied souls floating around being soulish together. This whole thing about... I, I did some Googling the other day to find out why do we talk about St. Peter at the pearly gates like Peter is sitting there with the register checking you in. And, and what's behind him is always just clouds. Have you ever noticed in the way it's always depicted? I have no idea where this comes from. It does not come from the Bible. The Bible, first of all, does not have us floating up to heaven where our little disembodied soul meets St. Peter. It, it has heaven coming to earth. The Lord's prayer that we prayed is going to be answered. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, your name be hallowed, on earth as it is in heaven. And the hope of Revelation is not that, we, that God says, well, thank you for praying that for thousands of years, but it's not going to work out. I just think I'll settle for my will being done in heaven as in heaven, and we're going to get rid of earth. No, instead, heaven is coming to earth. The dwelling of God is with mortals. The glory of God comes to this cosmos remade by the grace of God, by the gift of God. And in it are not just people, but everything that was ever done that partook of the image-bearing calling of human beings that's now rescued from sin and raised to glory. What does this mean uh, for the work that we do, for the way we live our lives? Uh, it seems to me it means that we, as we just do our image-bearing work of making mud pies or apple pies, uh, making, you know, running businesses or teaching school, uh, keeping house or writing laws. We aren't just in it to just kind of move the world along from good to very good. We're in it as servants of the glorious image bearer himself to try to bring, uh, make ourselves available for glory, little foretastes of glory to happen in the world. And we can trust that whatever we do that is truly offered faithfully to God will be redeemed by him into this glorious new creation. And I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and the, the way people always challenge me when I talk in these glorious terms about our work is they say, yeah, but what about accounting? 
You know, I can understand how teaching can be very good and glorious and, you know, music. And, but what about accountants? And I just want to say, I don't know exactly. Um, but I, I want to say accounting is very good. Are, are there any accountants in the room? We have an accountant. And I want to say the work you do is very good. And the rest of us really need you. In fact, there ought to be more. I'm a little worried there's only one accountant in the room. Because what accountants do is they serve this image-bearing purpose of bringing order uh, to the way we uh, use and steward the resources we're given. And without them, it gets very disordered because the rest of us can't even balance our checkbook. And, and then the question, when does glory happen in accounting? All right, admittedly, rarely, but it does happen. And I think it happens when the books balance. When, the, when both ledgers... Uh, combine, and they, and they come together, and, and it all adds up. There's this glorious moment. I know most of you don't reconcile your checkbooks because they say only 3% of Americans do this, but I do it, and there's this moment when you've checked off all the checks and all the deposits, and you add and subtract, and well, actually, the computer does all this for me, but then you get this bottom line, zero, meaning it's exactly right, and there's this glorious moment of, ooh, I, we got it. We've paid attention to everything we needed to pay attention to. It's this little taste of this moment when God's going to set everything right. All accounts will be settled. No debit will be lost. No credit will be forgotten. Of course, it's all going to be, there's going to be a massive credit on the grace side. And God's got to add it all up and say, I have not failed to notice anything that went wrong. I've fully judged it. I've paid for it. And it's now reckoned as righteousness to the people who put their trust in me. And that's an accounting term, by the way. Reckoned. And he's going to reckon. He's going to say, the book's balance come into this glorious new kingdom. Accounting. It's going to be in the New Jerusalem. <laughs> that being said, there are some disciplines that help us see it better than others, and, and one is art. And so I want to show you just briefly the work of two artists who have helped me see little foretastes of glory um, through the work they do. And the first is a photographer whose name is David Sachs. David uh, has done many kinds of photography. His latest assignment, he does a lot of commercial work, his latest assignment was photographing Pepperidge Farm goldfish. Apparently, the goldfish needed a do-over or a makeover, and uh, David was part of the next goldfish campaign. So watch for those. I'm sure you'll be keenly uh, attending. But David has also traveled around the world and in his, uh, using the uh, significant fame and wealth that he's gotten through his commercial work, has done philanthropic work and uh, has just, with his own money and time, documented the face of uh, people around the world who often are not photographed in ways that bring out the dignity and glory of their image bearing. And one of the places David did this a few years ago was on the continent of Africa, including in the nation of Rwanda. And you know that often, uh, all too often, when Western photographers go to the nations of Africa, what they bring back are, are pictures that show people in, in the most difficult circumstances, pictures of famine and difficulty, poverty, and of course, these are realities in Africa. But the other reality is none of us would want to be photographed at our own moments of the greatest vulnerability. And, and it, it's a very distorting thing if all the pictures that come back are pictures of people at, at their lowest moment in the greatest difficulty. And so David has gone to Africa several times and brought back these beautiful portraits that bring out the dignity and beauty, beauty of image bearers in Africa. One of his uh, most... Uh, widely seen images ended up on the cover of this book that was selected by Oprah for the Oprah Book Club 
So for a while, I'd go through the airport and buy bookstores, and I'd, I'd see David's image every, in every bookstore. This wonderful portrait of a, human, a, a glorious moment in a child's life where you're just running along a road. And the beauty of that and the freedom of it and the kind of wholeness of it. And this child is just running along, uh, the translucence of the clothes and the shadow, just a glorious image. Um, some, some of his portraits are quite haunting and uh, not sort of conventional, but they also bring out this sense of great glory and dignity in this uh, child or, or young person. The way the light reflects off the face of this uh, servant of God marked by his collar. An incredible grace, steadfastness, faithfulness that's reflected in his visage. And then one of my very favorite images from David is this woman who is not conventionally photogenic, has without doubt had a difficult life. And her glasses probably aren't quite the right prescription. Uh, And yet he captures her in a moment of of dignity. And even in this person with her uh, her story undoubtedly of suffering, there's, there's a kind of glory to her and a pride and hope in her face. And you say, I'd like, to, I'd like to look like that. I'd like to be that kind of human being. So David uses his art to capture, and it's always a gift, right? In photography, you can take a lot of pictures, you can try to make them good, but just once in a while you capture a moment, and you capture the glory of what it is to be human, even in Africa. It's beautiful. I think of another friend who's a painter, his name is Makoto Fujimura. Some of you have seen his work probably. Mako works with very elemental pigments, and he doesn't paint representational art. He paints abstract art. And he starts with the absolute raw mineral materials, and he grinds them with a mortar and pestle, and then binds them with glue, and then layers them on canvas. And his work is incredibly rich. It has both, uh, you know, he has gold in this painting, these beautiful layers of gold, but then also these dark pigments of blue and blue-black almost. And then that interesting little glimpse of uh, kind of light on the side in that lighter area. And, and his, his work often has these tensions of darkness and brightness. Gold leaf he often uses to bring out kind of a flash of light and reflection in the midst of a very dark painting. This is Mako in front of one of his largest works. It's uh, quite, quite a bit taller than he is. It stretches about 12 feet to the left and the right. Uh, and he's layered gold leaf over this entire set of wooden panels, but not before laying down layer after layer of pigment. And what you get is this image of a world that is, there's kind of glory breaking through uh, into your own space as a viewer. I'm going to leave Mako's, this painting by Mako up to, as I illustrate one last thing I want to say about glory before telling you a story, and then we'll be done. Which is that Mako's work, what I love about it is it doesn't omit suffering. Now his paintings are beautiful, but they're not beautiful in a pretty way or a sentimental way. There's, things have been crushed to make this. (laughs) And you sense 
the, the red of blood and the blue of the, the floods that come into human lives, the deluge of suffering, and yet there's also glory in the midst of it. And it reminds us of one more thing about glory, which is that glory prepares us for suffering. Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. (laughs) While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. This moment, which we call the transfiguration, happens at the turning point of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's from this mountain where Jesus' magnificence is finally revealed. The Son of God is revealed. The Son of Man is revealed to be the Son of God. It's at this moment that Luke gives us an insight into what this moment is for. He said, Moses and Elijah were speaking with him about his departure. Jesus goes down from this glorious unveiling of his full being and goes, sets his face toward Jerusalem to be hung on a cross, exposed in the utmost act of shame and humiliation that the Roman Empire could devise from glory to suffering, and the glory is preparing him and preparing Peter, James, and John for this most difficult journey into the darkest reality of human being. This is a photo of my friend David Sachs, the photographer whose work you saw. Uh, David and Angie and their four kids have become the dearest kinds of friends (laughs) The kinds that you have, your best friends are people you have moments of glory with when you're not even trying. And I remember this dinner two years ago at a restaurant. Uh, I had had a good thing happen that week, so I brought champagne and we popped it and just had this incredible night of drinking the champagne, laughing, sharing, uh, talking about the deepest things in our lives. Four weeks later, David went to a, a lung specialist with a persistent cough And the lung specialist examined him and and said, in what has to be one of the world's worst moments of bedside manner, I can't help you. You have cancer. And walked out of the examining room. And over the days that followed, uh, David was told he had stage four cancer, the kind that has spread all throughout his body, his liver, his spleen, his bones, his lungs. And that began one of the most harrowing journeys I've ever had to accompany a friend through. Every other week, these poisons that we hope will be uh, drugs (laughs) called chemotherapy, every kind of pain, despair as he thinks about his family, as he 
imagine it's his youngest, uh, Skylar and Ava, not even knowing his name, or not, of course, remembering his name, but not, not having any memories of him. Uh, by the grace of God, David is still alive, but, and there have been miracles, miracles along the way. Uh, but he's now in hospice care, and mutual friends and I have been exchanging text messages this weekend just as they keep me posted as David uh, tries to hold on to life. Uh, but in all likelihood will be taken by cancer um, in the next few weeks. And yet, um, glorious things have happened in this story. Several of David's friends who are fellow artists wanted to do something for this family. And what they decided to do last October was a a benefit art show. (laughs) And they called it Das Baum. Uh, which sounds like this kind of cool art thing in German, and it actually just stands for David and Angie Sachs Benefit Art Market. <laughs> but do- doesn't it sound like some- something you're too cool, you're not cool enough to go to? You know, uh, well, uh, you're going to Das Bums this evening. Uh, yes. Um, and what it was, was 50 artists from uh, all professional artists, a very high level, from New York and Philadelphia and other parts of the country, uh, gave works of art, which were then uh, curated by one of the best gallery owners in Philadelphia, in a gallery on Walnut Street, uh, the, the high street, the sort of affluent shopping district of Philadelphia, right across the street from the Apple Store, on Friday night in October. You could walk down Walnut Street, and there was this gallery full of these glorious works. Um, this remarkable sculpture by the former design director of the New York Times, um, works of great complexity and subtlety, abstract art, um, works featuring male nudes, so we'll keep going. Um, And not least, uh, I looked at the catalog ahead of time and had seen this work by Makoto Fujimura, the painter whose work you saw. And the way David's friends did this was so wonderful. They decided not to make it a charity event because artists are always being asked to give their art. (laughs) But artists need to eat. And so what they did instead is the gallery owners gave their 50%. The way it would normally work, the gallery would take 50% of any sale and the artist would get 50%. And the artist still got their 50%, but the gallery owners donated their half of the sale price to the Sachs family. So it was this celebration of art, not just a charity, but this this moment where a whole community came together, hundreds of people came to this show. It was this glorious night of community and beauty and Uh, just richness. The USA Today found out about it, wrote a story about it. All these good things rippled out from it. And Catherine and I had talked about whether we wanted to buy anything, and we'd looked at this painting by Mako, because you can tell I love Mako's work. Unfortunately, Mako is really expensive. So we went really thinking, well, we'll just go and support and see our friends and support David and Angie, and it'll be great. When we got there, we saw that Mako had actually submitted two works to the show. And this was the second one, the one we hadn't seen until we got there. It's called Lux Eterna, which is a line from the Requiem, let light eternal shine on the departed. And Mako has taken cobalt, and he's layered it over this canvas, and then he's drenched it with water and lifted up the canvas so the water flows down. And as it flows down, it creates these incredibly complex structures as the pigment dries. And then he's added just a few layers of gold these little pieces of gold leaf. And I looked at it and I thought, this is what David and Angie are living through, this flood that's come into their lives. 
drenched their lives with suffering and uncertainty. And yet, in the midst of it, there have been these little spots of glory and hope. And Catherine and I looked at it and we thought, wow, we'd love to have that. And there's one thing you should know, which is that all the other artists were getting their 50%. But Mako, who's at a very high level and very well compensated, had given these paintings outright. 100% of the sale of these two paintings were going to go to the Saks. And so we looked at the price tag. <laughs> and each one was $20,000. Now, I don't know. I mean, I realize for some of you, $20,000 maybe doesn't seem like a lot. For us, that is a big gulp. And we do not have a credit card that goes up that high. <laughs> But I have several credit cards. <laughs> and I said to Catherine, all right, we are in it with this family. We've already supported them financially. Are we going to give $20,000 over the next few years so that, David, that Angie can care for the kids? However long David's alive, they don't have to worry about money. After he's gone, we're, are we going to keep supporting them? It's easily, it's going to be a lot more than $20,000 that we're in this for the rest of their lives. And I said, why not get a painting? So we maxed out our credit cards and went home with Mako's painting and it now hangs in our house. And I love that it's a gift all the way around. Mako just gave it. And we gave. And then we received. And Angie and David received. And Mako in his own way receives. And it reminds me of how much love gives and how much love costs for the rest of our lives in our home, we'll have this little bit of glory out of the worst possible thing that could happen to a friend. Friends, wherever you are, you may be in the midst of the very goodness of life. Or you may be facing the cross. I just want you to leave today knowing the glory of God is working in you. Paul has this amazing phrase when he's talking about our mortality. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And at the end of this whole story, we'll hear the voice of the one who says, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen.